0: Alright, that being said, we, we uh, have started a new sermon series. We just started a new series last Sunday on the book of Numbers, and this is the fourth book of the Bible. It's one of the books of Moses. You know, he, he's uh, credited with Genesis through Deuteronomy, and so we consider this the writings of Moses. So we just started this last week. And and again, this is not the kind of book where when you say, hey, we're going to have a sermon series on the book of Numbers where everybody goes, oh, yay, that's my favorite book, or I'm so familiar with that book. A lot of it may be unfamiliar territory. And the passage that we're looking at this morning is the kind of passage that might be unfamiliar territory. You know, like sometimes people decide, I'm going to read all the way through the Bible And and they'll they'll start with Genesis. And so they're going through. And Leviticus and Numbers is like the heartbreak hill of Bible reading plans. And this is the kind of passage that can do that. I mean, I think it's interesting, and I I hope it will be interesting as we go through. But we really do believe that this is all God's Word. And and something that I mentioned last week that I want to keep before us is that Jesus himself more than once in the Gospels says that Moses wrote about me. And I mean, no devout Jew of the first century would ever have made that claim unless he's either crazy or uh, a heretic or, or he's the Messiah. He said that, that I am the fulfillment of Moses's writings. So I want to keep that before us as, uh, as we're looking at the Scripture. So we're going to look in Numbers chapter 6. Um, one other thing before I read this passage there's a real sticking point that comes up when people do start reading the Bible, whether you make it all the way through Leviticus and Numbers or not. But especially when you get into the New Testament, there's a question that I've heard people raise this question with me. And I remember even as somebody who grew up in the church, and I I I know that's not a lot of us, but even if you grew up in the church, maybe just your own interaction with the Bible, at some point you looked up and went, I don't know how to answer this question. And the question is, What really is the role of good works? Because it seems like you've got this tension in the Bible. On the one hand, especially in the New Testament, it just comes through loud and clear. You do not save yourself through your works. I mean, I I would just... Whether you ever came to Downtown Press again or not, I would want you to know that. That the Scripture is just so explicit about that. You're obeying God is not what gives you uh, heaven. You obeying God is not what gives you eternal life. You don't earn your way. You don't merit your way. So that comes through, bam, loud and clear. But works are still important. It's not like God says, hey, look, so since works don't save you, just don't even worry about it. Just believe and just kind of, I don't know, like drive the speed limit and, you know, and then die. Now, our works do matter to him, and he really goes to great lengths in the Old Testament and the New Testament to get into some particulars about how we live. So how do, you, how do you fit that tension together? These things called, you know, obedient works or good works or deeds or however you want to say it, they don't have the power to save me. They're extremely important, and God gives great attention to them. How do I fit those together? And really, this passage gets at that tension Whether or not you've ever heard this, this is, this is a passage that might sound arcane, uh, but it really gets to the nature of what is the role of works with God. Numbers chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. If any of the people, either men or women... Take the special vow of a Nazarite, setting themselves apart to the Lord in a special way. They must give up wine and other alcoholic drinks. They must not use vinegar made from wine or from other alcoholic drinks. They must not drink fresh grape juice. And they must not eat grapes or raisins. As long as they are bound by their Nazarite vow, they are not allowed to eat or drink anything that comes from a grapevine, not even the grape seeds or skins. They must never cut their hair throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long, and they must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord. Even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister, they must not defile themselves, for the hair on their head is the symbol of their separation to God. This requirement applies as long as they are set apart to the Lord. And then to verse 13. This is the ritual law for Nazarites. At the conclusion of their time of separation as Nazarites, they must each go to the entrance of the tabernacle and offer their sacrifices to the Lord. A one-year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering. A one-year-old female lamb without defect for a sin offering. A ram without defect for a peace offering a basket of bread made without yeast, cakes of choice flour mixed with olive oil, and wafers spread with olive oil, along with their prescribed grain offerings and liquid offerings. The priest will present these offerings before the Lord, first the sin offering and the burnt offering, then the ram for a peace offering, along with the basket of bread made without yeast. The priest must also present the prescribed grain offering and liquid offering to the Lord. Then the Nazarites will shave their heads, at the entrance of the tabernacle. They will take the hair that had been dedicated and place it on the fire beneath the peace offering sacrifice. After the Nazarite's head has been shaved, the priest will take for each of them the boiled shoulder of the ram and he will take from the basket a cake and a wafer made without yeast. He will put them all into the Nazarite's hands. Then the priest will lift them up as a special offering before the Lord. These are holy portions for the priest along with the breast of the special offering and the thigh of the sacred offering that are lifted up before the Lord. After this ceremony, the Nazarites may again drink wine. This is the ritual law of the Nazarites who vow to bring these offerings to the Lord. They may also bring additional offerings if they can afford it. And they must be careful to do whatever they vowed when they set themselves apart as Nazarites. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're going to say to you what you already know and what may be very obvious to us, that this is unusual terrain for us. This is not uh, part of our culture. It's not part of our practice. But this is your word. And we, we want to follow behind the Lord Jesus as he says that these scriptures find their fulfillment in me. So would you, would you open that up to us? Would you enable us to connect those dots? And let us hear you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. A few months ago, I, I bumped into a guy downtown. And um, there's no one in the room. He's not, not someone that worships or attends here. Anyway, I just someone I hadn't seen in a while, and uh, we were chatting on the corner, and I don't know how we got into this, but he told me about a a project that he did one time for his wife as a gift. He said that, and get this, for one whole year he kept a special journal, and every day he would put an entry about his wife in this journal. So, I mean, if he, if, if he followed through with the plan, let's say, you know, over 300, maybe 365 entries of how he saw her, what she meant to him, and at the end of the year, he gave it to her. And he told me that when he gave it to his wife, that she's, she said, did you do this for me, or did you do this to feel good about yourself? And I thought, ooh, Man, that's not what I'd want to hear if I did that for a whole year, you know, really unfailingly I've made all my entries. But that question has haunted me. And I think she was very thankful for it, but, but her initial question was really insightful. I'm sure it was stinging to hear that. But you think about, like, did, did you do this so that when I got it, I would go, oh? And then, like, then I'm sort of in debt to you because I haven't done anything that great for you. Like, did you do this to leverage something? Or is it just a gift? And there's no expectation of my response. That it's just a gift to me because, because you love me. It's really a searching question. But I think that, that her question to her husband really gets at what is the role of works or obeying God For someone who believes in God and is in a relationship with God, our work's something that we're trying to use to leverage Him, to leverage something with Him. You know, like, I think things are really about to get tough at work right now. I've got, like, a big project I'm about to lean into, or this is the difficult season of the year for us. I really better up my Bible reading and prayer. Well, what do you mean? But do you mean that, wow, I really need to be listening to God? I really need to be talking to Him because, number one, He deserves it. Number two, that's just good for my soul, and that's what I was made to do. Or it's like, is that going to leverage that He's sort of over a barrel now that He has to help me out at work because I'm being more obedient? And do you get the tension? And again, this, this passage, even though, again, it's, it's arcane, and this is the kind of thing that frustrates people when they read the Old Testament, this passage gets at the tension of what is the role of of obeying God? What are the roles of good works that cannot save you and that God requires? So let's look at this. Let, let, me, let me say this. Uh, the, the word that's just all through this passage is really even in the terminology of a Nazarite, is the term separate. Did you catch that? The, the separation, separate, that terminology is all through this passage. And, and it's interesting, it's not so much a separation from your peers. It's not, well, you're going to separate from the Israelites, from your brothers. The real emphasis is that you're separated to the Lord, unto Him. So it's not like I'm better than y'all. It's I am separated unto you in a special way. It actually says that, separate to you in a special way. Uh, we don't tend to talk in terms of like, I'm going to be separated unto God... Sometimes we'll use the language of devotion. I want to be devoted to God. In fact, you know, kind of Christian lingo is sometimes we'll, we'll call that time of day, maybe that someone has set aside, that's when I'm going to read my Bible, that's when I'm going to pray, that's when I'm going to think and meditate about God. Sometimes we'll call that our devotions. So for our purposes, I'm going to use, instead of the language of separation, I'm going to use the language of devotion. I mean the same thing that the passage does. So I want to think about two points. Let's think about special devotion to the Lord. So here's the points. Number one, special devotion fits, and special devotion reminds. Special devotion, it fits. It's fitting. And special devotion should remind us of something. Now, let's let's dig into that. First off, special devotion fits. Big picture, Uh, think about this. I want to make some kind of big observations before we get into what did Nazarites do who took this vow. Here's just some broad brush observations. Number one, did you notice it's open to men and women? Now, there's a few Nazarites that actually show up in the Bible. People like Samson, who was not he was not a very faithful Nazarite in some ways, and the prophet Samuel's mom set him apart to be a Nazirite before he was born. And I don't know if he, after, you know, he got to be about 15 or 16, if he thought, wow, thanks, Mom. But she, she could not have children. And she came to the Lord and she poured her heart out. And she said, if you give me a son, he'll, she doesn't use the word Nazirite, but she describes one. And so he was one. Uh, John the Baptist sure sounds like a Nazirite. But did you notice it's open to men or women? A man could be a Nazirite. A woman could be a Nazirite. And did you notice that it's completely self-directed? First off, you don't have to do it at all. And there's no expectation that once a year you must have a time of being a Nazirite. Completely voluntary. And not only is it voluntary to do it, it's voluntary how long you do it. You could be a Nazirite for 30 days. You could be a Nazirite for 10 years. Or you could never be a Nazirite. Okay, so it's, just, it's completely self-directed. It's to the Lord. What are the requirements? All right, three biggies. If you, if you decided to be a Nazirite for however long, here's what you did. Number one, nothing related to grapes. Now, some people in church history have seized on this and went, Aha, uh-huh, okay, I told you, alcohol is off limits. Well, you know, and raisins. And, and grape skins, for those of you who love to snack on grape skins, it just, it's just categorical. It's, it, it does say this, even vinegar that's related to other kinds of fermentation or processing, no alcoholic drinks, but nothing related to the grapevine, which would have been, by the way, in a, an eastern setting like this, that'd be a massive inconvenience, I mean, if you already didn't like wine it just like that's just all through life that would mean constantly when you're with other people and they offer you food you're the oddball or what we would call social settings you're the oddball so just categorically nothing from the grapevine right that's the first one no contact with a dead person and just just so you understand how how high the stakes are here's what god says um, Verse 6, they must not go near a dead body during the entire period of their vow to the Lord. Now, fairly safe if you're a Nazarite for 30 days. But what if you're one for 10 years? What if you're one for your whole life? Because catch the next verse, verse 7. Even if the dead person is their own father, mother, brother, or sister... Now, there's part that... I wanted to keep the passage manageable, but, you know, in that intervening part, God actually says... I'm paraphrasing. If you have vowed to me that you're going to be a Nazirite, let's say for a year, and then three months into it, your father dies, and you decide to break your vow and go be next to your your father's body, then you just neutralize those three months. You have to start over with a a brand new year, or you've broken your vow. again... You know, we, we, we sort of want to run, run to why those requirements, why those stipulations. God doesn't explain, but just understand how, what a massive inconvenience that would be, especially the longer the period of your vow was. I can't go near any, di- if my child dies, I can't go near to my child. No contact. Third one is this, and maybe this is the, the oddest one. Verse 5, they must never cut their hair. Throughout the time of their vow, for they are holy and set apart to the Lord. Until the time of their vow has been fulfilled, they must let their hair grow long. Now that looks different on different people, but man, you take a vow for three years, ten years, you could grow some hair. And you know I, that that's one of the big reasons we would say that John the Baptist was probably a Nazarite, and he was a wild-looking man, living in the wilderness, living off locust and honey and uncut hair, what would that do to people? What would that do to the community? These, these people are set apart, but you know, let's say monks It may come, come to mind. You know, monks usually have like trimmed hair or, or shaved heads. These are like monks that can still have families and it can be men or women and they have wild, long hair. What would that do to the community? Um, let, let me share something from my own experience. and I, Some of you may share this or you may have a different version of what I'm about to describe. But the, my whole life, this has happened on a semi-regular basis. That when I just get really in my own head, which is about 95% of my life, and I'm wrapped around the axle about something and I'm thinking about something that's not right or something I've got to finish or what all is on me or blah, blah, blah. I'll see someone that's like a quadriplegic. And it, and it jolts me. Have you ever had that happen? This happened to me two weeks ago. And maybe for you it's not somebody with physical disabilities. It may be something else. It may be seeing somebody who's homeless. It, but just you see something that's so other and it jolts you. It's like it breaks through the fog to go. You, you are wrapped around the axle about this whatever thing that inconvenienced you. And just that person being that person, just that person being present, it jolts you to say, "Who like who do I think I am?" Now, when you saw a Nazarite, you couldn't see that that person's never around dead people. You couldn't see that, well, that person doesn't eat anything, you know, grape related. But you could see that hair. And what that must have done to the community of Israel is that when people are going about their life, and by the way, they're not in the promised land yet. It's not like God is coming to the Israelite women and saying, okay, worldly Israelite women, tear yourselves away from the sales rack of the nice clothing stores and think about being devoted to me. He's talking to people in the wilderness. What must it have been like, even in the wilderness and in the promised land, you're just kind of going about your life and you're thinking about kids, you're thinking about work, you're thinking about crops and it hadn't rained and you're trying to keep the trains running on time and just kind of do your chores and you see a Nazarite and it would jolt you to remember, we are to be set apart to the Lord. How set apart to the Lord should we all be? Now, not just Nazarites. How set apart to the Lord should all of God's people be? And the best answer I know to that question is is Jesus' explanation. Here's how Jesus answered that question. This is from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, just four verses. He's talking to people who would be used to having, you know, servants in their homes. So here's what Jesus says. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him... When he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me, and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, should say, We are unworthy servants, we have only done what was our duty. That's a hard passage. Jesus very explicitly says, look, with your servants, when they've worked all day, they don't come in, you're not like throwing rose petals in their path and saying, look, let me just kind of like, let me rub your shoulders and let me... No, you come in, you fix my meal first and dress properly when you do so, and then when you're through, you may eat. And then, and then when they do that, he says, you wouldn't even say thank you. That would just be the expectation of a normal day for those, those servants. But then Jesus turns the light on us and he says, So you, even if you do every single thing that God commands you, don't think for a second that that you can kind of step back and go, Now, now, I have got some serious bargaining chips. Now I have got special place, special hearing, special status and position with God. He says, Look, what, what what were we made to do? We were made to know Him and serve Him with every single molecule of our being. If we do everything that God requires, if every, if every nanosecond of our life is unto God, we're just doing what we're supposed to. You know, and a Nazarite was supposed to be sort of an odd, weird, weird, Self-directed, voluntary, jolt in the community to make you go, oh, yeah, everything is unto God. Special devotion to God is not something that earns anything. Special devotion is fitting. It's what we're made to do. And the Nazarites, wow, we're a reminder of that. But I don't want to end there because there's this other thing I think we need to see. Special devotion, it fits, but special devotion, it reminds. It reminds. What do we mean by that? Look in verse 13 up at the top of that second page. When you came to the end of your period, so let's say you vowed, I will be a Nazarite for six months. So for six months, you did it. No grape products, no dead bodies, grew my hair out. How do you end your Nazarite time? All right, verse 13. This is the ritual law for Nazarites. At the conclusion of their time of separation as Nazarites, they must each go to the entrance of the tabernacle and offer their sacrifices to the Lord. A one-year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering. A one-year-old female lamb without defect. Okay, this is where we start tuning out. Did some of you start tuning out when I'm reading about bread without leaven and stuff like that? I mean, this is why we sort of flake out on Leviticus and Numbers. But understand what just happened. God says this. If you want to have... Okay, I'm I'm paraphrasing, obviously. If you want to sort of make your life kind of a particularly special love note to me, you may take this vow and do these particular things, whether you understand it or not. I'm just telling you how to do it. And then when you come to the end of it, when you present it to me, there must be all these sacrifices. Now, what does that tell you? even our special devotion has to be cleansed isn't that something like even our most special focused intentional devotion to god needs atonement and man that will make one think about one's life let's say that you really struggle with anger, really struggle with anger, really in particular with family, and that 99 times out of 100 you blow it. You raise your voice, take somebody's head off, fuss, accuse, make a scene. Let's say, and I'm talking to Christians, not just heathens, But let's say one time out of a hundred, because of your relationship with God, because you've prayed about it, because you do want to obey Him, because you do want to follow Him, that one time out of a hundred you speak gently and with self-control, wisely and peacefully. Did you know that that moment needs atonement, just like the other 99 moments? That moment needs cleansing, just like the other moments. See, and here's the thing. When, when we're reading something like Leviticus, and, and it, and it, or this passage, you know, and it's talking about a ram without defect, or a bull without defect, or a lamb without defect, we sort of tune out. But why does that keep coming up in the Bible? Why does that keep coming up in the Law of Moses? Because that phrase is all through it. It's pointing ahead that someone needs to take your place because you are riddled with defects. And this God has no defects. What he is worthy of is service and offering and gifts and relationship without defect. When you bring an animal, don't bring the crummy animal that you need to euthanize anyway. You bring the best animal. Without defect. But what were all those animals without defects pointing to is that we need a man without defect. And God sent him. So here's the thing if you're a Nazarite and you did it just the way God said, every single moment of your Nazarite vow period, it still needed sacrifice, it still needed atonement. There's only been one man whose life was so set apart that it could stand on its own merits. Jesus' prayer life did not need atonement. Jesus' interaction with the Scriptures did not need atonement or cleansing. Jesus' interaction with the opposite sex never, for a moment, needed atonement or cleansing ever once. And here's what God says in his word. The only way you can stand before a God like me is if he does it for you, the ultimate male without defect. And gives you credit for his life without defect. So that God sees you like your life is without defect. And that all the defects that you have, past, present, and future, are credited to Him, and He is sacrificed. Did you know in the book of Ephesians, in the New Testament, the death of Christ is called a fragrant offering to God. It's likened to a burnt offering. My Bible reading needs Jesus. The rare moment where I actually am quiet and I pray, my praying needs. Jesus. My, my praying needs the blood of Jesus. Those rare moments where I want to watch something I shouldn't watch, and I want to watch it so bad I can taste it, and I actually don't watch it. My not watching needs the blood of Jesus. Everything. Preaching needs the blood of Jesus. Worship needs the blood of Jesus. But get this. This one kind of... Again, oddity of oddities. You know, you got these wild-haired, long-haired Nazari- long, wild Nazarites. But did you catch this in verse 18? Then the Nazarites will shave their heads at the entrance of the tabernacle. And then, then what do you do with his hair? They will take the hair that had been dedicated and place it on the fire beneath the peace-offering sacrifice. And remember, there are no cameras. There are no recording devices. There's no way to post your Naziriting. Hashtag grapeless or whatever. There's no... There's, there's no if, you, if you did... Let's say you were a Nazirite for three years. What's the only thing you could hang on to as a memento... Of this very special time in your life. It would be the hair. However much that was. And God essentially says this you probably want to keep that to remember that you did this. Or to tell your, if you have kids, to tell your kids about it or whatever. You cannot keep it. You can't put it in a memory box. When they do the burnt offering and the peace offering and all that, take your hair and burn it with the offerings and that goes to me too in other words don't ever look back on this and feel like it earned you something don't look at this thing that you did and derive some kind of comfort from it like your attainment gave you some extra investments let it go If you're really doing it for me, let it go. I want to read you something. This is by a Puritan named Thomas Brooks. and This is from the 1600s, so the language is old-fashioned. But he's writing about what we would call quiet times or devotions. He calls them closet duties. That's how Puritans talked. And what he's referring to is Jesus said, Hey, if you pray, don't go do it in, you know, in front of everybody. Go in your closet in secret and God will see you praying in your closet. So he's calling what we call devotions or quiet times closet duties. Listen to what he says. "Rest." This is in a book about praying and about the need to pray in your closet in secret. He says this. Rest not on anything on this side of Jesus Christ. Say to your graces, say to your duties... Say to your holiness, you are not my Savior. You are not my mediator. Therefore, you are not to be trusted in. You are not to be rested in. It's my duty to perform closet duties. But it is my sin to rely upon them. Or to put confidence in them. Do them, I must. But glory in them, I must not. He that rests in his closet duties makes a savior of his closet duties. I cannot believe he said that in the 1600s. That is so perceptive. Let all your closet duties lead you to Jesus and leave you more in communion with him, and then you are safe forever. What if one of us said, you know what, I'm going to quit piddling around about the Bible. The rest of 2017, I'm going to study one book of the Bible in more depth than I've ever studied a book of the Bible. I'm going to study the Gospel of John in more depth than I've ever studied before and you have a special notebook and you're looking at commentaries and it's your handwriting. This is not something you print off the internet. It's your blood, sweat and tears and you think about it and you pray about it and you get excited about things and you call a friend and tell them what you're learning and at the end of 2017 you've got this just one of a kind, your handwriting, special, never done this before collection of time you spent with God. For the Nazarite, it's like God saying, I value everything you did, to burn it. I'm not saying you need to do that with all your sermon notes or any other kind of... I'm just, but I'm saying... Yeah, I mean, like, don't burn my notes, my, my sermons. <laughs> now, I'm saying, it's like God saying, I, I love that you did that. But when you're... When you're wrestling with your guilt... Your sin, your bad habits, your failures, you're going to be tempted to walk over that book and think, I'm not that bad. Don't do that. Don't go to the thing you did. Go to Jesus. Go to the Savior. Bible study is a wonderful discipline, Bible study is a horrible Savior. Church is a wonderful means for God to work in your life. Church is a terrible Savior. Jesus Christ, man without defect, is a wonderful Savior. And He's worth every minute of our lives. I want to end with this question. When is the last time you did something just because you love Him? It's not to jump through a hoop... It's not for you to post. It's not for you to get credit for it. It's not going to be known. Maybe you're not even going to tell your best friend. But if you're somebody that believes that God sent that man without defect to take care of all my defects, when's the last time you just did something for him because you love him and it earns you nothing? And it gives you no obligation in his sight to bless you more than the other person. But you do it to say, I should do this anyway. That's health. To be devoted to the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, all our money, all our things all the hours and minutes in our day, all our technology, all our friendships, all our privacy, all our commitments, they are yours. We pray that we won't keep forgetting that, but that you would awaken us to the fact that we are devoted to you. We are to be devoted to you. We thank you for your Son who is devoted in a way that we have not and cannot be. That in him we are made clean. In him we are atoned for. Thank you. If anyone here, Father, has not turned to him, would you give him saving faith? Would you give her saving faith? Would you make us the people that secretly write you love letters with our lives? In Jesus' name, amen.